verses 1 to 16. If you will open your copies of the Bible there. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 16. If you'll stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is God's Word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we turn to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. Almighty God, we come once again before your word, and we are thankful for it. And we are thankful also that your word creates your people, the church. And as we think about this topic in the Apostles' Creed, that there 
is the Holy Catholic Church, this body that is consecrated in Jesus Christ, we ask that, that we cherish up in our hearts, that we store up in our souls the thing that comes through so pointedly in Ephesians 4, the unity of the people of God as we are knit together to help each other in the Lord Jesus. Whatever failings I might have in communicating that, bring it home to us well and clearly and forcefully, O Lord. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, for they are many, and bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better, and we ask it all for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. When uh, Scott was born in London, we had to go to the U.S. Embassy to register him as a, as a natural American citizen born abroad and, and to get his American passport. And, and as we entered the embassy, I was struck by how different the atmosphere of the whole place was from everything outside. And a, a list of things stood out to me. But, but as I sat in, in the reception area, thinking to myself that this was the nicest room I'd been in in some time, uh, it occurred to me that probably the most comforting feature was how much personal space I had. Uh, there, there were like multiple feet between me and, and the nearest family, or even the next uh, row of chairs. It, it was a really spacious place. And that sort of space was unusual in Britain, but basically expected. Yeah, no eyebrows are raised right now because we expect it here. But it's far from the norm there. We can forget that, that embassies are a, a funny sort of thing, legally speaking at least. The, the property on which any U.S. embassy sits is American soil. It's, it's a carved out chunk of another country that is in truth part of this nation. Why did the U.S. Embassy there have features and practices that pulled me back into American culture? Because it isn't part of Britain where American affairs happen just to happen, to, to be conducted. It is America. And so aspects of American life and values extend to that place. And though an embassy exists amidst another culture, in the midst of another country, it nonetheless instantiates its homeland. For every U.S. embassy, America has, in a sense, dropped a piece of itself into another place to protect and further our interests there. Embassies are something real, though. I mean, if you go to lots of major cities, or by contrast, right, if you go to lots of major cities, they have uh, 
a little Italy or, or a Chinatown where concentrated expressions of another culture sort of spontaneously popped up and came together into this one little spot, right? But on, on the other hand, an embassy is, is constituted with a formal purpose of extending a particular government. It, it isn't spontaneous at all or subject to whimsical fluctuations or, or changing as it morphs with the surrounding culture like, like a, a little Italy or a Chinatown can. It exists as an imposition of another culture from outside, dropped in. And so the Apostle Paul had really good reasons to refer in 2 Corinthians 5.20 to new covenant ministers as ambassadors for Christ, having the role to implore sinners to be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. And he returned to that idea of an ambassador, somebody who works in an embassy, uh, in Ephesians 6, 19 to 20, stating his role as an ambassador of the gospel. And so there is this role of ambassador, but here in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, we have a description of the embassy. The embassy itself, as well as of what role, uh, what it means to have this role of ambassador. We learn that the church as we know it was left by Christ in the wake of his ascension as his embassy of his kingdom on earth. It is the outpost of his heavenly kingdom meant to extend the culture and government of heaven as particular instantiations of our true and heavenly homeland. In working through the Apostles' Creed, we're in this section about the Holy Spirit, exploring particular works most associated with the Spirit. And as we noted last time, the first thing we confess under the Spirit's work is that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And as we think about the Church as holy and Catholic, we learn about what it means that that it is distinct from the culture in which it resides. After all, embassies don't merge into the society or around them or merge the societies around them into themselves. And, and also about what, it, what makes the church one entity with one purpose. And so the main point, the main point is that Christ, by the Spirit, creates the church as a gift to manifest his kingdom. Christ, by the Spirit, creates the church as a gift to manifest his kingdom. And our three points are clarifications, Catholicity, and consecration. First, let's, let's think about clarifications. So there are two issues that I want to take up from 
the outset to make sure we understand what the creed is saying. And the first is to think about the phrase in the creed that raises a lot of questions, uh, maybe second only to the line about Christ descending into hell. What do we mean when we say that we believe in the Catholic Church? Uh, You gathered from my sermon on Christ's descent into hell that that I think possibly we could benefit from a a fresh translation of the creed. I, I don't think we should be amending what is in it, but given that this comes to us from a different language, we might be helped if we had a fresh translation. And, and here tonight, I guess the thing is, I, I wrestle with whether that is the case for what's before us this evening. And here's why. We obviously associate the word Catholic first with the Roman Catholic Church as an institution. I, and I often go back and forth with myself um, because I have these debates when I'm by myself, uh, about whether or not it's more useful to, to attempt to reclaim the word itself or if it's better just to retranslate this word and make the discussion easier on ourselves. We, we wouldn't need this whole first point if this was translated a different way. Uh, now, the reason behind all of this, okay, so... The word Catholic is actually just a Latin word. We haven't translated it. Catholicos means universal or general. Uh, We might smooth it for the point that that is at work here in the creed tonight as worldwide, if that's a helpful way to put it. So the word Catholic is just meant to refer to the fact that the church is one church as it spreads itself across the world. The creed isn't congregationalist, if we could say it that way. Uh, It is universal in that it is not limited to one nation, nor is it divided according to be the the church of different nations. So it's not like there are different churches, even as they pop up in different places in the world. The church is one under the Lord Jesus. It's not separate. It's not different entities according to ethnicity, language, lineage, nationality, earthly citizenship, or anything else. And so to confess that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church just means that that we believe that all God's true people, regardless of time or place, are all bound together as one people because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not different institutions. Now, now let's pull the thread a little bit more. Um, So the reason, this this gets to the, I guess, my internal debate about whether or not we ought to have the argument. The reason that the Roman church calls itself the Roman Catholic Church is because it is claiming to be the universal church. So their intent in the name of Roman Catholic 
church, is to claim that the only way to be part of the true church, connected to Christ, is to be in formal communion with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. They are saying that no other institution is part of the universal community of Christ. And so you can see why I kind of want to push back and, and, and pull that word back for us. So Now, the thing is, they have, I mean, we live here in the 21st century, and they have diluted that claim some in the documents of Vatican II that happened in the 1960s that kind of took a softer position on maybe there could be people that know the Lord Jesus outside of Rome. But the traditional stance behind the name is that the institution in in union with the, the Roman pontiff is alone Christ's church. That's their claim and traditionally. And in that respect, maybe it ought to maybe it's obvious already, but just to point it out, the adjectives Roman and Catholic world worldwide are in conflict because it defines the universal church by a specific city, which doesn't make much sense. Uh, And we might note, now I know what they mean, uh, and we might note that when the Apostles' Creed was written, there was no Pope, as we know it. That role, as we know it, developed centuries later. And so that, that can't be part of what's going on in the Creed. And by contrast, by contrast with all that, when we confess our belief in the, the lower C, Catholic Church, we are saying that Christ has a people all over the world, joined to him and joined to one another because of our union with him. And so that's the first clarification. Is that's what we mean when we say we believe in the Catholic Church is that Jesus has a people all over the world and that they're all his and that we're all equally and the same. We're not divided in some other sense. The second clarification, which is far quicker, far quicker, uh, relates to to the two phrases uh, that first we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and then second, the communion of saints. Now, um, some have taken, and, and there's reasons why, you could do this, taking these two phrases as, as meaning the same thing. But you, you can see that I've, I've taken one for the title of my sermon, so uh, you can guess that that's not the view I favor. Uh, I think our phrase tonight gets at what we've already talked about, the objectivity of the institution that Christ left on earth. And the following phrase about the communion of saints gets at what it's like to be part of the institution that Christ has left. So that's the second clarification. Uh, And with those clarifications in place, let's think about what the Holy Catholic Church is as Christ left it for us. So that brings us to our second point, Catholicity. 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 We want to get right to Ephesians 4 at this point, because that first 
point was far too long about something other than the Bible. So, Ephesians 4. Uh, What does it mean to think about what it means biblically that the church is holy and Catholic? And this passage before us hangs around two critical points, two, two kind of hinge junctures. So first... When we look at verses 1 to 3, they express a a governing, a controlling exhortation. Paul wrote, from prison, mind us, to urge the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have from God as those whom he has brought to faith. So that calling... Uh, he, he doesn't leave us to make it up, right? Th- it, it's so good that we have this principle when we read the Bible that we have this exhortation, right? And, and our imaginations can immediately start spinning. What does that mean? And we start to fill in the blanks. But thankfully, uh, we can just keep reading. <laughs> and he tells us. Right? So what does it mean to walk in this worthy man, the, the manner worthy of the calling? Well, this calling includes humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another as Christians for the sake of peace and unity in the church. So, doing all of these things to be more tightly knit together, that's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Christian calling. And we need to think about how that call helps to explain what the church is. And that call comes to express uh, the reality that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Interestingly, uh, these benefits as, as kind of the some, uh, yeah, the list, I know that he, he comes back to God at the end, but that's kind of the binding them all together. These enumerated benefits have bookends about the obviously objective reality of the church. Right? On, on the front end, there's one body, and on the back end, there's one baptism. And the in-between blessings likewise belong to the church. We receive the Spirit's work in the church. He works ordinarily through the means of grace. We have our hope because we are reminded of that hope in the church. Jesus is the one Lord specifically over the church, his people. We are not a diverse faith, but all who truly belong to God's people are of the same sort of faith, the sort of faith that trust in Jesus Christ. All these blessings bring us to the one God who is over all things. And then, so that's our, that's our kind of first uh, aspect here, the first critical point, is this exhortation described in, in summing up things that unify Christ's people. And, and then in verse 7, we, we start to see why these blessings are not about 
simply kind of a, our personal, subjective experience, but are about Christ's objective creation of the church as the institution of his kingdom. Right? This grace that, he, that has just been described, this grace was given to each of us as Christ's gift as he ascended. He gave gifts to men, as to people, to humanity, to his people, as he went to sit at the Father's right hand. He left gifts for those who belong to him in his wake. And set within everything we saw last week about how the about how the Son poured out the Spirit as He ascended, we find starting in verse 11, what the concrete manifestation of the Spirit being sent, being poured out, looks like. So starting in verse 11, it tells us what it's going to look like on earth to find the Spirit being poured out. Christ poured out the Spirit to give the gifts of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. In other words, the Spirit manifests Himself as the poured out gift of the ascended Christ in the presence of church officers who work to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up Christ's body. And their work continues, so the Spirit through these officers, their work continues for the sake of attaining unity in Christ. Now, another way to talk about unity is Catholicity. In other words, the the Catholicity of the church, its, its universality rests in what we call the the marks of the church. The preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the sacraments, which are church discipline. We proclaim one Lord and and the one faith in that Lord Jesus, which is confirmed by the one spirit in one baptism, as well as the same supper that Christians share together. In Christ, Jesus gave a church that has real features in which, which take part, that, that ground its unity, and why, why congregations across the world, although we have different emphases in, I mean, have different emphases, have different styles, we look very different. Well, despite all of those things that can differ, these things, the marks of the church ground why we have true union with one another in Christ. Because Christ has constituted one people with a structure to ensure that his message is given, delivered, preserved and furthered. The gifts that the ascended Christ gave through the Spirit ground 
the church's Catholicity. And so that brings us to our final point, consecration. I, I know that that word has lots of meaning. When I'm saying consecration here, I mean holy, and I needed a word that started with a C. Um, so, the, and when we talk about the church as holy, we're talking about how it's set apart. It is distinct. And, and I want to think about two senses in which the church is set apart. Two senses in which it is holy. Its pattern and its purity. So it has a, it has a specific design, which we've already touched upon. And it has an ethical destination. A design and a destination. So as far as its pattern, we've thought already about how Christ, by the Spirit, created the church with a certain shape, a shape around official biblical teaching through appointed officers who protect and help the church through through cultivating and correcting discipline. Now, what's, what's the point I'm making there? So, we are all, always, all of us, are always under church discipline. Most of us exclusively experience cultivating discipline. Uh, the, the positive Investing in the saints through word, sacrament, and prayer, and pastoral care to, to build you up in faith, assurance, and holiness. So, so there's cultivating discipline to edify you, to build you up. And sometimes, on the other hand, when we refuse to repent of sin, we come under correcting discipline where the officers have to rebuke in a more formal way. And so the structure of specific church officers for teaching, shepherding, and growing the church is good news. And in fact, as we think about how the office of deacon came to be, we see how that is the manifestation of the ongoing work of the Spirit, right? Because uh, this is Ephesians 4 is describing what Christ left as he ascended. And he gave the gift of deacons in Acts 6. It's a, you know, a later development brought about by the Spirit. But, so as we, as we think about Christ creating an official church, an objective church, giving specific church officers to, to lead, direct, to help, that's good news. And we should be glad about the church's objectivity in that sense. Um, why? Why is this pattern? Why, why is the church's holiness according to a, a design, a structure, something that should make us glad? Well, Christ, by the Spirit, in this way, created the church's independency. We are not tied to any nation. 
which means we can incorporate people from all the nations. Uh, we are supposed to be distinct from every nation and every government while incorporating and including people from every nation, country, ethnicity, and government. And, and so Christ's gifts of officers and objectivity makes the church its own society. It's an embassy, distinct from the society in which it resides. And so, praise be to God, even as we thought about last Sunday morning, right? Praise be to God that he will grow, deepen, and strengthen his society regardless of what is happening to the culture that surrounds us. We are, we are the embassy of heaven. We are heavenly. So when we are constituted, when we assemble under the call to worship, when we are gathered under the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are heavenly soil purchased in this age to represent somewhere else. That's an exciting thing. We embody the culture of Christ as his people, although we are outposts working within a surrounding culture. And that is why, so, so the first uh, aspect of holiness actually leads to the second. That very thing right there is why the church's pattern furthers the church's Purity. The, the church's structural holiness, institutional holiness, as a, as a set-apart body, a set-apart institution, well, that works to strengthen the church's ethical holiness as people who are set apart from sin. The, that objective holiness works to Develop, strengthen, deepen our subjective holiness. After all, in Ephesians 4, we see the objective gifts that Christ gives serves to build the church's unity, to grow our knowledge of the Son, to mature us, and to give us new measures of fullness in Christ. Because of that work that happens on account of the church as an institution, we are enabled more and more to resist the things of this age and to grow up into our head, Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is given a certain objective position in order to work in us a, a subjective growth. And there's a parallel to that in the gospel itself. Christ gave himself for our sin to cleanse his people and to bring us to faith. He makes us spotless and blameless before him so that he might be pleased with us. And on account, on account of that forgiveness of sin, that justification... He works in us to sanctify us, to grow us 
in godliness. Galatians 4, right? He bore the curse of the law to send forth his spirit in us that we might be indwelled, strengthened, grow. And so the church as an institution is then a, a, a template as a gift from Christ to understand the gifts Christ gives us as members of his church. What a blessing to have this distinct citizenship as Christians. That we have this place where another culture is instantiated and embodied in us. That when we gather here, we ought to feel how much we've stepped out. We ought to realize that we've stepped out of a worldly culture and are experiencing the culture that Christ has poured out from heaven. It ought to strike us that we're in a different place than we've been in a long time. As we grow in acting like Christ culture, we help one another. We help one another to encounter the character of Christ himself. How good it is that Christ gives us the gift of knowing himself as he gives us the gift of belonging to one another. He shows himself to us as we find him living in each other. It's a privilege to get to show Christ to our brothers and sisters. We can easily forget that. And it's a privilege to get to see Christ as we know our brothers and sisters. Praise God that he shows up and makes himself known through us. Let's pray. Father God, it is easy to feel like we do not live in a manner worthy of this calling described in Ephesians 4. It is easy to live not in that worthy manner. But we are thankful that as you have set apart your church through these gifts described here and throughout your word, you improve your church. And we see in that, well, the very model of how you work in us through the gospel, that you set us apart and that you have marked us as blameless and that even when we fall short, so far short, of what it means to be called blameless, you have declared us righteous. And you are working that blamelessness increasingly in us as we walk with you in this life, looking forward to its completion in the next. But as we see that you have marked out a holy Catholic church that people might know the Son and know Him unto maturity and know Him unto unity, we ask, O God, that You might use us, that, that Christ is seen in our midst, amongst our members, that we would show Christ to one another, that we would see Christ in one another, and that others outside 
well, they might see him too and long to be part of us. That even, even as citizenship in heaven is such a, a prized thing that, that there might be people lining up to apply for that citizenship. And help us to say, all it takes is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will make you his. He will make you his nation. And you will grow your people. We're thankful that you have done that for us. We look to see you do that in us. And so we ask for your help and blessing. We ask it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. People of God, stand to receive your benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this day and forevermore. And all of God's people say, Amen. Wonderful to be with you today.